I grew up in, uh, as many of you know, the deep, deep south. And as you might expect, there are streets and parks and schools named after Confederate generals. Confederate flags hang from homes and businesses and pickup trucks. And there are large, beautiful homes that have been around for over a century with live oaks in the front yard and full of Spanish moss. Some of these homes were built in the first half of the 19th century and they have a, a specific name. These are antebellum homes. Now this term doesn't designate uh, the style, but it designates the era in which they were built before the war, not the war, World War II. In the South, oftentimes the war is the Civil War. The Civil War tore a hole in the soul of our entire country, but the existential wound was even more severe in the South, and people still mark time and mark architecture as antebellum, before and after the war. Everything was turned upside down. Government, industry, trade, family relationships, social hierarchies, and of course, profit that was built upon the, the free labor of black bodies. It would take generations before what was won in the war would become reality for far too many people. There were devastations everywhere, but also new possibilities. Also the foundation of an entire new world was being established and People were experiencing for the first time legitimate hope that transformative healing could come into the soul of our country. Many were resistant to this healing, of course, and some still are. Now the Jewish mind in the ancient world marked time in a very similar way. They conceived of the world in two epics, this present age filled with injustice and war and inequality and oppressive regimes and, of course, sin. In the coming age, when the prophecies of old would become true, that dead would be raised, that justice would roll down, that swords would be beat into plowshares, and a new dawn of God's work would completely upend things as they are. Now, this isn't a perfectly binary schema. There is a broad liminal space between these two worlds in this present age where the evidence of each epic can be seen and felt and the coming age that is still yet future, but also in things like Jesus' healings and his casting out of demonic possession, the coming age bleeds into the present world and the present age. Now, if you grew up believing in this two-age worldview, you would also at some point certainly wonder, does this coming age include me? Will I inherit eternal life? Now, riches were often thought to be an indicator that you would. Wealth was a sign of God's blessing. But as Jesus interacts with this 
quote unquote, rich young ruler, he not only begins to undermine that connection between wealth and membership in the coming age, he goes one step further and he says that riches, possessions, wealth, that these things can actually keep you out. They can keep you from experiencing the promises and the healing that are embedded in this idea of the coming age. Now, you may have noticed Mark doesn't say that he's young. He doesn't say that he's a ruler, just that he's rich. We read in Luke's gospel that he's a ruler and in Matthew that he's young. But we know from all three that he's Jewish because he keeps the commandments. But he's clearly skeptical of the conventional wisdom that wealth equals belonging because the premise of his question is based upon the need for reassurance. He approaches Jesus in the posture of supplication and he calls him good teacher only to be immediately rebuffed by Jesus, which has caused theologians over the centuries to wrestle with Jesus' apparent denial of his own divinity. Or maybe Jesus is being sly and wanting this man to come to the conclusion that he is in fact good, that he is in fact God. But good teacher is a a standard form of greeting that could be an attempt at ingratiation. I will say something good about you, then you do me. Jesus isn't necessarily making a Christological statement here. He's rejecting the reciprocal terms that the man brings to the encounter. And notice the tension in this man's question. What must I do in order to inherit eternal life? These two things don't go together, do and inherit. These are two very different approaches to eternal life. But surprisingly, Jesus doesn't immediately distinguish between the two. Instead, Jesus asks him about the law. Well, this isn't very Christian of Jesus at all. He doesn't say to the man, just believe. Don't do anything, just have faith. He doesn't walk him through the sinner's prayer. Jesus, the Lord of grace, points him to the law. And a very curious sampling of the law it is. He cites commandments six through nine, but he subtracts one through four and 10. And then he adds, you shall not defraud, which sounds like one of the commandments, but isn't. This is all honestly a little bit confusing. Jesus leaves out the most foundational commands, one through four and 10, which many people think brackets the internal part of the commandments that Jesus does quote. And then, even more curious, Jesus implies that keeping the commandments is in some way connected to one's claim upon eternal life, while at the same time he drives a wedge between the way in which the man was keeping the commandments and his expectation of eternal life. What Jesus is doing here is very complicated. It's very nuanced, 
And admittedly, it's a, a little bit confusing. So we should have a little bit of humility as we seek to determine exactly what Jesus is saying. Notice that each of the commands that Jesus does talk about are passive. Refrain from doing such as these, murder, theft, adultery, lying, etc. Well, this is just sort of basic morality, even for secular people. This isn't a hard list. This, these are the basic expectations of humanity. Well, the man says, of course, I've done this. He's done it since birth. He's, in fact, completed Jesus' list of commands. And yet, yet he's still on his knees before Jesus. Yet something prompts him to seek out Jesus and prostrate himself before him. He's seeking out some kind of answer, some kind of healing, perhaps. And Jesus looks upon him and Mark tells us that he loved him. Whatever Jesus is about to unveil, whatever Jesus is about to tell him, as hard as it might be to hear and as difficult as it might be to execute, it's not punitive, but it springs from love. Sell everything you have and give it to the poor. Now, Peter speaks up, which is typical, but this time he sort of has a point. He says, Jesus, what about us? We have given up everything to follow you. It sounds like a work of self-justification from Peter, but Jesus actually concurs with his reasoning that in some way, Peter and the other disciples in giving up their, their fishing nets, which for them would have been representative, an analog of wealth, for them leaving their homes and family. It is a fulfillment of the very thing that he is now demanding of the rich young ruler. They have left everything to follow Jesus, which is sort of the summary command in verse 21. Sell everything that you own and give it to the poor and follow me. Jesus is affirming that this is exactly what Peter and the other disciples are doing, and that there is a strong correlation, if not direct causation, between a sacrifice made on behalf of Jesus and an assurance that you will inherit the kingdom. There's at the same time a, a warning about passive compliance, a sort of transactional salvation where you keep the commandments in order to inherit. The command that Jesus is most concerned about here is follow me and everything that that entails. In many ways, you could pack all of the Ten Commandments into those two words, follow me. But for this rich young ruler, this command lies far on the other side of his great fortune. Wealth, you see, insulated him and often insulates us from the appeal of, the logic of the kingdom. 
This man wanted the assurance of eternal life, but laying down his wealth to get it wasn't wise. It wasn't good. It wasn't a tolerable choice to make. It wasn't a good transaction. Frederick Beekner says, Jesus says that it's easier for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for a rich man to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe the reason is not that the rich are so wicked that they're kept out of the place, but that they're so out of touch with reality that they can't see it's a place worth getting into. It's not that God doesn't like rich people, but that rich people don't like his terms for belonging. A man with no attachments can pass quite easily through the eye of the needle. It doesn't even feel narrow to them. But to a rich man, the eye of the needle is exceedingly small. In fact, it's too small for us rich people to drag all of our belongings through. Now, attachment is an important word here. We read that when Jesus tells him that the key to getting through the eye of the needle is that he detach himself from his great wealth, that the man's face fell and he went away sad. The rich young ruler is sad because of his emotional attachment to his wealth. He has an emotional response to Jesus' demand that he give away his possessions because he is so emotionally attached to them. The problem is that this is an emotional attachment that all of us want. <laughs> Reasoning that we could, we can own a great deal and still love and still follow Jesus. Maybe, but friends, it's not all that likely. It is easier, Jesus says, for a camel to go through the eye of a needle than for someone who is rich to enter the kingdom of God. Maybe, maybe it goes too far to say that wealth is inherently corrupting or inherently evil, but it's far more dangerous than we probably want to consider. While there are places in the Bible, sure, where riches are a sign of God's blessing, we think of Solomon. The underlying moral thread of the Bible tells us over and over about wealth's inverse relationship to our spiritual health. So perhaps a, a lack of concern about the accumulation of stuff actually reveals a lack of concern about our own spiritual health. And we need to remember that the basic nature of sin isn't moral misbehavior, but it's self-sufficiency, it's autonomy, it's claiming the lordship of the self. Success, money, possessions, these things give us an illusion of control, a sense of being able to manipulate our world and to keep difficult circumstances away. And so it's easy for us to forget about God, to forget about the kingdom, to follow Jesus just 
a little bit less than we normally do when we have an abundance, when we have wealth, when we have power, when we have status. Jesus tells this man to go, to get up. This is the same thing that he has said throughout Mark. Whenever he cures a disease, whenever he casts out demonic power, whenever he grants sight to the blind, now go, now get up. This is what he tells the rich young ruler. In other words, this isn't a transactional story. This is a healing story. Or more accurately, it's the sad story of someone rejecting healing. Mark is implying that this rich young ruler is sick with wealth. He is heart sick with possessions. And somewhere deep down inside, he knows this. And that's why he's standing in front of Jesus. He's seeking Jesus out, not simply to ask him about heavenly entrance exams, but rather how to be well. Whatever his fateful and pious life has led other people to believe, he's still missing something, something important, something that matters. Maybe you've been here. Maybe that's where you are this morning. Well, thankfully, friends, it's, Mark tells us that Jesus looks upon him with love. Jesus sees all that this guy has, his observance of the law, his piety, his abundant wealth, his distorted sense of self, of God, and of his neighbor. And Jesus loves him anyway. And Jesus wants to heal him. And this healing being like treasure in heaven. Friends, if this, is, if this is true, and true in a way that doesn't just describe a scene 2,000 years ago truthfully, but represents God's interests now, then perhaps Jesus is seeking yours and my painful healing this morning. Maybe he's seeking the healing that none of us are actually looking for and that few of us want. That is that Jesus might know our deep heart sickness and looking upon us with love invites us to rid ourselves of that which distorts us, that which numbs us, that which makes us feel less. And then he says, follow me. Salvation, friends, isn't abstract. It isn't merely about eternal destiny. It's not merely about some disembodied state in this abstract coming age, but it's about healing, bleeding in from that age into the here and now, into this present age. It is experiencing life and joy and hope that is impossible with us, but is possible with God. And so then the question of who then can be saved becomes me. It becomes us. It becomes 
everyone hearing these words because with God, what is impossible becomes possible. Would you cling, cling to that now? Would you claim it for yourself now? Would you lay everything before Jesus and ask him to pick through it and do away with that which is hindering us and corrupting us and making us heart sick? And would you ask for his healing? Let's do so as we confess our faith and then as we come before the table. Father, I pray that you would make us well, that you would help us to seek our spiritual health no matter the cost. Would you let this community be a community of health, a community that people can belong to and not be condemned, but can be loved, loved into discipleship, loved into following Jesus. Lord, I pray that that you would help us to acknowledge how sick we really are, that you would help us to acknowledge, even when we don't want to, that our wealth, our possessions, the things we own do have an inverse relationship with our spiritual health. And I pray that we would be willing to trade them, to trade what we own for real healing. I pray in Jesus' name. Amen.